Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The other day, I had OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt on the air, and we were chatting about what police are going to do in nine or ten weeks when cannabis becomes legal and people can do whatever they want to do, but potentially also get into their car after they've been smoking pot and drive impaired, although it's a little more complicated with impaired when it comes to pot because we don't have a specific number. Here's what OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt said police are going to be doing to find out and decide whether someone is impaired. Well, and we're training more officers all the time, but absolutely, we have those tools in place already. We have standard field sobriety testing officers that do roadside tests. They do the heel step turn. They check your eyes, the horizontal gaze of stagmas. They'll do some cognitive skills, some balance skills. And based on those tests, the officer will then determine whether or not they pass or fail. And if they fail, they will go off to a drug recognition expert. And this is a whole series of tests that are done in an attachment where the uh, subject is sent through uh, heart rate and blood pressure and eye tests and balance tests and cognitive tests and uh, urine tests and, and all sorts of uh, uh, blood pressure and so on. And based on the totality of that, the officers are trained in determining whether or not this person is impaired by what they're impaired, a drug, a stimulant, a depressant, or, or what kind of drug it is, and to what level. And those tests have been accepted through the court systems. Convictions have been entered. And that's, uh, that's what we use right now for uh, drug-impaired drivers. So what we have is, and by the way, he was a great guest. He always is. But what we're going to have is officers' subjective observations rather than a breathalyzer machine, because they don't have something like that right now, at least not commonly available. And when it goes to court, it is going to be the word of the officer, the observation of the officer who is going to be trying to lead to a conviction. Now, this to me, as soon as I heard this, and it's nothing about the police, it's the tools they've been given. To me, this sounded immediately like the doors were going to be wide open for defenses for impaired driving when it came to cannabis. There's no official number. There's no baseline. There's no hard and fast objective measure by which the Crown is going to be able to bring forward these charges. So how easy is it actually going to be to get a conviction for that? I'm not sure the answer is very easy at all. Jamie Stevenson is a local criminal lawyer. She is also the president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. She joins us now. Jamie, thanks for doing this today. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm great, and I'm thinking to myself that when I am, if I was a criminal lawyer and I am hearing that those are the guidelines that the police have been given to try and lead to enough evidence to get a conviction for driving intoxicated or driving high, I would think criminal lawyers are going to have a heyday with that. Yes, it's it's interesting that uh, this is, well, obviously there's good reason that this is a topic of discussion right now, but exactly what you said is that it gets into a subjective assessment and an observation-based assessment of uh, analyzing someone. So what it's going to open the door to is what we saw years ago until the case law changed about alcohol. We're going to get into the dueling experts. 
So you're going to have the officer who's going to be qualified as an expert to say, these are the observations I made, this is why I think this person is impaired. And then the defense is going to have an opportunity to hire their own expert to analyze the video because all of the DRE testing is done on video. And so our experts as defense experts are going to analyze and you're going to get into this dueling expert opinion where the police expert uh, will obviously, if there's been a charge, say, yes, they were impaired. And our expert is going to say, no, they weren't. And like you said, because there's no hard and fast number, there's not going to be an easy answer. And the judges are going to be left, hopefully, from the defense perspective, in some doubt. Well, I'm thinking now for most people, many people may not know this, but when a person is charged usually with impaired driving with alcohol, they are actually facing two charges. They're facing impaired driving, but they're also facing driving over 80 or driving over 80 milligrams uh, of alcohol in their blood. It's a, it's a hard and fast objective thing. It's a number you get from the breathalyzer machine. And I'm thinking that the reason that that is a useful charge and a useful piece of information is because it is a, it's a hard and fast number that has come from a machine that has been tested and uh, been calibrated. That's, that is, I would think, way more difficult for you as a lawyer to argue against than, again, someone's opinion of how you may have reacted to a heel-toe test or a turn-and-touch-your-nose test. Absolutely. And there are some cases where there's been an acquittal on on an impaired and a conviction on an over 80. Because, like you said, with the over 80 charge, and as you're quite correct, there often are both charges. On the over 80 charge, there's that hard and fast number. But with the impaired, again, you get into subjective opinion. And so I've often seen cases where there's a conviction on the over 80 and not on the impaired. But that's not going to be an option for impaired by drugs. At this stage, anyways, we only have impaired by drugs. So either there's impairment or there's not. And again, how do we assess that without giving? And But the problem is as well, with the way that the DRE works, not only is it subjective, but people who have physical ailments or medical issues that appear as impairment, which sometimes is the case, are going to find themselves caught up in these mm. charges as well, which is, uh, again, another problem. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jamie Stevenson, who is the president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association, joins me. And Jamie, we were talking just before the break about some of the things, some of the symptoms that police are going to be looking for. They're going to identify in people on the side of the road and I mean, there'll be bloodshot eyes and there'll be maybe the smell of marijuana, you would hope, and there'll be some other things. But I, I was looking through the list today of some of the uh, the symptoms and almost every one of these, or even in combination, could also be the result of something else. It, it, it really, unlike the alcohol drunk driving ride check program, it, it's a little more unclear. It's a little more wide open, it sounds. Absolutely. A lot of the what they're looking for during these evaluations, both at roadside, uh, the roadside standardized field sobriety test, as well as the drug recognition evaluator, come down to balance, they come down to coordination, and people who have uh, some physical ailments that don't impair them that they can't drive, sometimes show in what would be a fail on the drug recognition evaluator. Now, they're of course, ask these questions as to whether or not they have any difficulties. But even if they declare those difficulties, how then does the drug recognition evaluator assess whether the person's impaired or not? As you said, there are some initial observable signs that 
may be telltale signs like the uh, redness to the eyes and the uh, scent of marijuana, but that still doesn't get you over the hump of whether or not they're impaired. And that's when, of course, these evaluations become important. Um, they are, I, I did do some research uh, in today, and uh, there is a bill, uh, Bill C-46, which is actually um, hoping for approval on the use of oral fluid drug screening. So that may be, I'm not suggesting it's a conclusive answer, but that may be something that's going to help the police and another tool that they may have at their disposal uh, to assist in getting away from this um, evaluation that they're doing, which really relies on observation as opposed to any foolproof testing, so to speak. Well, right, because ultimately without, again, without the breathalyzer, what we're saying is, I think, is that if a police officer says you're impaired, you're impaired. Right. And that's a very broad definition. And again, I'm not I'm not in any way dumping on the trustworthiness or the honesty of the police. I think they'd be out there doing their best. I'm saying they don't have the tools at their disposal that they need to make these calls necessarily, and it's going to lead to some interesting scenarios in court. Absolutely, and that's exactly what I'm saying is, is it's not that they don't have the training. They've, they've taken the training. They're making their evaluation. But again, it's a subjective evaluation, which unfortunately is going to be subject to scrutinization by another expert. So again, like you said, they're doing their job. This is what they're trained to do, and this is the conclusion that they've come to. But again, because it's not based on a number or a particular uh, test that can be found conclusive, that opens the door to another expert coming in and saying, well, no, my opinion is that the observations you made do not amount to impairment. Jamie, they've said, and, and Officer Schmidt, Sergeant Schmidt was saying that once they have the roadside determination, they'll go to the station, they'll have a urine test, they'll have a heart rate test, these things. Do the heart rate test and the urine test rise to a level enough that you can reach an objective standard that it would eliminate all the other doubts? Well, I don't, my opinion would be no, and of course my argument in court would be no. First of all, with respect to heart rate, people's heart rate is, they differ in and of themselves, of course. My heart rate, my resting heart rate may differ from yours. Second of all, you're taking, you've arrested someone, you're taking them to the police station. (laughs) They may be a little anxious. I think that may have an impact on, yeah, absolutely. The other problem with the urine screening is that, uh, again, and I, I looked, I did some research on this as well, and a positive uh, test on the urine screen may not indicate current use because, again, it takes longer and our bodies all expel um, it at different rates. So again, somebody may have consumed marijuana two days ago, but it's expelling now. So you have tested positive for the marijuana, but that doesn't, again, that still doesn't necessarily mean that you're impaired at that time. Right. We, we expel, we go through marijuana different than alcohol. Alcohol, we know it's on a certain regimented time frame for the typical person. It's a little bit different with marijuana. Exactly. So uh, we can get into the whole discussion of whether or not, with what you're talking about, whether or not people love the idea that criminal lawyers are going to be finding ways to get people off. That's a different discussion for another day. But do you believe that when you look at this, do you believe as a criminal lawyer who may face something, who may have these cases, have we just brought this whole idea forward too quickly? Are we just not ready for this or will it never be ready for this? I definitely wouldn't say it'll never be ready for this. 
Uh, first of all, the criminal code, of course, the revisions happened back in 2008. Uh, July 2008 is when the criminal code was revised uh, to uh, afford the police the tools and powers uh, to allow them to bring in the enforcement against drug-impaired drug driving in addition to alcohol-impaired driving. And here we are some number of years later, uh, 12 years later now, and we still um, aren't, sorry, 10 years later, uh, we still aren't at a point where we have anything in place yet. As I said, the oral fluid drug screening is something that seems to be on its way in that may help avoid that discretion, uh, that as assessment that has a, the subjectivity to it. So I think we'll, we'll I mean, again, as things develop, uh, technology develops as well to that's we didn't have alcohol screening devices right. in the first place and and now we do and we didn't have uh, so it's as coming. the laws develop the technology develops as well and I think it's coming it's just a matter of finding um, one that works and finding uh, and and also getting it approved which is why we had the bills before the court, before the uh, Parliament. Jamie Stevenson, local criminal lawyer and the president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. On the weekend, I guess late last week and then on to the weekend, the Rogers Cup tennis tournament was played in Toronto and in Montreal. They always do it the same week. The men in one, the women in another. And this year, as in past years, but I, I, the the prize money always is a little bit different. But this year, it was pointed out by Pat Hickey, who writes for the Montreal Gazette, that the women, the woman who won, the first place winner for the women, won just a little bit more than 50% of what Rafael Nadal won, who was the men's champion. There was a disparity, a big disparity in the prize for the champion and, frankly, in the entire trickle-down and all the different amounts. The prize, the purse, was a lot less for the women than for the men. Now, this is the tip of an iceberg because we understand that women's sports and men's sports are two very different things, at least as far as they are commercial properties, as far as viewership, as far as money, all these things, two completely different stories. The question is, why? It's something that's been debated and talked about for a long, long time, but this kind of seemed to bring it to a talking point, to a head. The fact that you have a tournament, similar tournament, same tournament, same sponsor, different prizes based on gender. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why, and then we're going to bring in my guests here, because organizers said the, the reason for this was not because we're sexist, and I don't believe that they are sexist, but they're saying that the reason was because the revenues generated by the men's tournament were substantially relative to the prize. They were substantially bigger than the women's revenues. And therefore, if more people are watching, more people are willing to pay for men's, we pay the men more. Is this an acceptable answer? Deanna Benke-Cook is a sociologist with the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. Uh, she earned her PhD from McMaster. She also has, as part of her area of expertise, gender and sport. That is something she studied. She joins me now. Deanna, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure. How, how are you tonight, Scott? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm doing great. I'm, as always, this is one of those topics that I, you know, we could talk about for about six hours, but when you hear... 
that you have a tournament going on simultaneously, men and women, and the men are getting paid an awful lot more. I'm guessing, regardless of what the circumstance is, and regardless of whether there's any defense to that, I'm guessing this gets your attention. Absolutely, it gets our attention, <laughs> for sure. Is there... Is there a is it an acceptable answer for the organizers of a tournament to say that market the market drives what the prize money is going to be because we bring in tons more revenue from the men, therefore they should be paid more? Right. Um, is it an acceptable answer? I'm not sure that you know on a social level it's an acceptable answer because you know we're looking at women who are participating in sport men who are participating in sport, and we would hope that athletes are recompensed appropriately. But it's also true that professional sport and athletics um, is an, actually is a, is a wing of the entertainment industry, if you will. I mean, uh, athletes are paid to play. And so the unfortunate piece is that when women don't have opportunities for media attention, for instance, um, we know that women are less likely to be in their, uh, whether it's a tennis match or golf or whether it's rugby or you know, whatever sport it is, women's uh, athletics, uh, they're less likely to be highlighted, you know, as far as the media is concerned. We have less viewership, and when you have less viewership, then people are not aware who the athletes are. And, I mean, let's face it, the reason that we enjoy sports so much, at least, you know, one of the reasons we do, in, in my opinion, is that we're drawn to whoever it is that's on the screen or who's on the field or who's on the pitch. Star power. Absolutely. People are interesting to us, and... If, if, there's, if there's nothing that draws us, if we don't have any interest, if there's nothing that kind of resonates, you know, is there something that we have in common, some sort of similarity? You know, are you from my hometown? You know, you know have you, you know, suffered these particular hardships in your life? And I can relate to that. Um, women's opportunities are significantly less than men's opportunities around that. And so uh, they're, not, they're not as well known. You know, I was uh, looking at it a little bit about uh, FIFA in 2015 and the kerfuffle about, you know, what was happening there in terms of the, the women playing on turf as compared to men playing on natural grass services and so on. And uh, that particular tournament had a massively huge viewership. Folks were tuned into women's soccer. Um, but the argument was also made, yeah, but you're only watching the World Cup. Don't you watch women's soccer like any other time? Do you know who these players are in the different countries? And so it brings it back around to what you were just saying, revenue. You know, you have to have butts in the seats. But and there, but Deanna, okay, and, and you know, I think you're on to something. I think there's a very valid point there that uh, if you have stars, if you have celebrities, if you have a connection, an emotional connection to an athlete, you will want to watch them. You will then spend money to buy a shirt or to go watch them live or whatever. That, that's a very valid point. But I'm wondering if that, where the blame then comes. And it really is a chicken and an egg scenario because if you are a broadcaster and you put women's sports on TV or on the radio and you get small audiences, right? you then say, well, it costs a lot of money to broadcast these games. There's no bottom line there's no benefit to us but then right. if you don't put them on the game the argument is well then you're not building the audience to be able to build that kind of market exactly and and that's why we have the situation that we do um that you know it's it's less likely that we're going to see women female athletes out there uh you know as far as being broadcast via the media and if we don't see them then they have less opportunity for people to know them and then they certainly have less opportunity for 
sponsorship opportunities. And, you know, some of the discussions around, you know, gender uh, discrimination or experiences for female versus male athletes, you know, are kind of far ranging. The first one would be lower wages. And essentially, if you're playing in a particular league, uh, you're an employee of that league. And if there's revenue available, then your salaries are going to be based on the availability of those kinds of funds. Um, The second piece is we see that females are less likely to have endorsements. And, and why is that? Well, I mean, a company is only going to endorse an athlete or a celebrity or any individual because they're going to garner the attention. They're going to garner the eyes of the audience. Who is your target market? Does this person, you know, as you said, do they have star power? Are young people, older people going to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go buy that watch. That person's driving that car. You know, that person is wearing those boots. And I've you know, I'm drawn to that person. I'm interested. I want to be like that person or have something in common with them. And if you don't recognize who those female athletes are, it might be just any other person. And so, again, it's the whole chicken and the egg thing. How do we see female athletes highlighted? How do we get them out there? How do people get to know them um, if, if they don't have those opportunities? And then, just as you said, from the media perspective, you know, you put something on and you have a really, really small following or viewership or readership, or whatever the case might be. And, you know, things peter out. Sponsorships dry up. Uh, folks are looking for a return on that. So I do recall, and, and it was back, what was the year? Was it 92, 98, 99, the year that um, we had the World Cup, the Women's World Cup of Soccer in Los Angeles and... Um, of course, I'm drawing a blank on her name, ripped off her top with the sports bra. It was a big famous moment on the yeah. penalty kick. And, right, and right, right. women's soccer, huge audiences for that World Cup. It was uh, it took off in the States. I think they filled the Rose Bowl for that final game, 100,000 people. Right, right. And in the wake of that, and around that time, they, just, they started up a women's pro soccer league. And I believe there was like $100 million of capital put into getting that started. And that's around the time that there was women's uh, Sports Illustrated for Women. They put out their own magazine specifically on women's sports. There was uh, TSN for Women or Women's WTSN here in Canada. There was a huge push to do what you're talking about, to give the exposure, to give the opportunities. Mm -hmm. There was a a competing league with the WNBA that was out there that was a women's professional baseball league. There were two women's professional volleyball leagues. All of them failed. The women's TSN was gone. Sports Illustrated folded. The soccer league went kaput. Even when those opportunities were there, they didn't catch. Why not? Massively awesome question. Thank you for asking that. It's a, that's a very complicated answer. And I think being a sociologist, the way that I would best explain this is that we don't socialize our girls to be athletes. We, 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 and we've talked about this in the past, you and I. Sport is known as the masculinization project or the masculinizing project. We generally put our boys as parents, uh, community members, what have you, we put our boys in sports because we want them to be masculinized. We want them to be assertive. We want them to be aggressive. We want them to be independent. We want them to have all of these strengths and these skills. Conversely, and yes, we are before, you know, somebody listening is saying, well, no, this things have changed. Yes, things are changing. But it's also true that we continue to raise our girls in a very different way. And we do not necessarily um, reward girls for being assertive, aggressive, um, out there. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people who would talk about that as being very um, 
uh, not uh, highlighted or not embraced kinds of qualities uh, in women. And so, you know, and this is true in a variety of different fields. This is, it's no different in athletics as it is, for example, in the entertainment industry. I'm sure people um, have heard or read about, you know, various uh, uh, movie um, celebrities or television celebrities who talk about wage disparity and how they're perceived and what kinds of opportunities there are. Um, you know, let's talk about politics and women's opportunities uh, in various political parties. We know that we might be 50% of the population, but we're certainly underrepresented um, when it comes to having those kinds of opportunities. And, and why is that? My argument would be is that, you know, we are making uh, inroads. There's no question about that. But we still uh, value, we still raise our girls for the most part to be docile, compliant. Uh, we talk to them about how beautiful they are. And even in a research study that I was um, taking a look at yesterday in, uh, because, you know, I work in the field of education as well, when young students were asked in grade seven and eight what they valued most about themselves or what they thought was most important, the boys time and again said being a great athlete was a really important piece to them. And more often than not, the, the, the female students said that they were pretty beautiful and that they got good grades. And that's, so that continues on today. So I don't know if that... Well, no, and so, and that, I mean, that brings me, though, to the other part of this. And you, 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 it's a great segue that you brought because you mentioned that more than 50%, I don't know what the number is exactly, but slightly more than 50% of the North American population is female. Right. Meaning that if even a representative amount of women said, I am going to support women's sports, either by attending or watching, if I find Serena Williams fascinating, if I find... Uh, the women's soccer team, this or that, whatever, WNBA, women's hockey, if in even a reasonably proportionate amount women were to support that, mm-hmm. there would be thousands and thousands of people at all these events. I'd, where I find this situation so difficult to get my head around is when, uh, being very honest, when women complain that women aren't being supported in sports and aren't being treated equally, right. and then you say, but do you ever go to their games or watch that, them? And they say, no. Right. So why are women not supporting women? Because men go to women's games and women go to men's games, but women clearly don't go to women's games. Well, that's that's the million dollar question. Why do women not go to women's games? Well, just uh, I'll roll it back a little bit. One sure. of the things that we do know and we understand about girls, for example, how we socialize our girls and their experiences in athletics and sports, what we see is a real drop-off. Once girls hit puberty, once they hit high school, once they hit those dating years, once they hit um, pressures around uh, academic achievement and heading to post-secondary, we see girls sport involvement drop off drastically. Yes. Yeah. And so we don't we don't see those same kinds of drop offs uh, as far as male students or male athletes. Males continue to have more opportunities to play sport uh, in in um, you know sort of pickup leagues. Uh, they have more opportunities to have those kinds of experiences with one another. If if I you know as at the age that I am, if I wanted to go and play say soccer or hockey or football it would be a far more difficult um, process for me to be able to find other like-minded people who are still doing those kinds of things. True, but if you decide, if even if you were not an athlete anymore, if you have given it up, and I know you aren't, but let's say I've given it up and I now weigh 350 pounds and I'm a right. couch potato, right. that hasn't precluded me from watching these sports. 
Right. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. But I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that if if you can't really identify with those people, and I know I keep coming back to that, but I feel like our attention is drawn to people that we find interesting or that we have something in common with or that we've been, you know, we were an athlete when we were younger. And even if we're not that anymore, we still have that that drive, that interest, that um you know, because as I said, professional athletes, um, it is part of the entertainment industry. And so, uh, you know, maybe that's a short, a short answer for we just don't identify with athletics in the same way as males. And could there be a variety of different reasons? I would say certainly one of the reasons would be the way that we socialize our girls uh, to, 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 to not necessarily be involved in sport in the same way. Um, there are fewer opportunities for them. To play, and again, um, I don't know. You know, it's a it's an interesting. Well, it's a tough one. There's no it's question. A it's a tough one. one. And and I, it, the next part I follow. We only have a few minutes left here, but the follow up to that is then. So if what you're saying is true, and I, and I will grant you, I think you're I think you're for sure onto something that we do like to watch things that we experience. We if if yes. if I take up golf, I'm going to be more interested in watching golf. There's no question about that because you suddenly you right. realize the difficulty and what what they're doing, how hard it is, and all the rest. That said, if I am then a guy, and yep. when this Rogers Cup story came out, there was a suggestion that pretty much as a guy that I should feel terrible that I am more interested in. Rafael Nadal than I might be in the woman who won the women's side, whose name, of course, because it just fits right now, is eluding me. But anyway, right. um, <laughs> and of course, I, you know, but should I feel guilty or the fact that I am more interested as a guy, do I need to feel guilty for that? I don't think you need to feel guilty for that. I think that what we need to do is we need to just be recognizing and be cognizant of the fact that we need to give uh, greater opportunities and uh, media attention in whatever way so that women who are these amazing athletes who represent their countries, who, you know, represent their sport, uh, more opportunities. One of the things that I think is also interesting and and, um, is worth mentioning, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, is female sports that are likely to be interesting to the general public usually um, accent the the female aesthetic, the beautiful body, the the tennis players who are wearing, um, you know, uh, tennis tennis attire that highlights the female physique. I mean, there's been a lot of research and a lot of interest paid to the sports that are most popular uh, for men watching women are the sports where the body aesthetic is highlighted. Beach volleyball. And you beach ball and and in case in point that you made about way back in the late nineties, uh, I um, can't remember what her name was. The Brandy gal. Chastain. Brandy Chastain. There you go, uh, pulling her shirt off. There was a lot of criticism that actually got railed her way and said, "Why did, why did you have to go there? You know, you you had this amazing athletic event, the score, whatever. Why did you have to rip your shirt off?" And so there was a lot of criticism that came back, you know, in her direction from both sides saying, you know, we're more than that. We're more than running around in our bras. We're, we're professional athletes or we represent our country or whatever the case might be. But um, there certainly is more attention paid to sports uh, where, as I said, the, the female aesthetic is highlighted and, you know, uh, whether it's male or female viewership. Um, and it's also seen as perhaps more elegant or uh, in some way more refined or more sophisticated or some of those things that we would more likely want to be able to characterize female females as being. 
if you're following what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And Deanna, we only have, as I say, we have a minute left here. And unfortunately, sure. I wish we could talk about this for an hour, but... Title IX was passed in 1972, I think, in the States, which guarantees equal opportunity for women in universities. Dollar for dollar, whatever spent on men's sports in the NCAA must be spent on women's. The thought was by now that we would have reached a point where we're not having this discussion. And yet it sounds like from all this that all it's proving is that you cannot force a square peg into a round hole. If people are not going to be interested, they're not going to be interested no matter what you do. Is that fair? Um. I'm not sure if that's fair necessarily. I know that the the debate continues to rage around Title IX. Uh, One of the things is it doesn't translate into the commercial enterprise, though, because when you're looking at things like our our leagues, NFL, NBA, any of those kinds of places, you're not guaranteeing any sort of equality or equity in terms of any kind of compensation because it has nothing to do with how the government is run. Title IX is basically related to any school that receives federal funding, government funding, must in fact provide equal opportunities regardless of gender. And there have been schools that have actually sort of railed back at this Title IX and said, you want us to give half to female students, half to male students. We don't have as many female students interested. We can't carry enough athletes to even fill a roster. We can't make Mm. the games because we don't have enough people who are playing. So I think I think the issue really sort of arises earlier than that in terms of who, you know, who we raise our girls to be as compared to who we raise our boys to be. And I do want to say, I know we just have a second left. We are making strides. I know that sport opportunities from when years and years ago, when I was a youngster, the the sport opportunities that were available for females were few and far in between. I ran track and I didn't have anybody to train with. They didn't have tra- like weight training programs for female track athletes. I trained with the guys. And so when I trained with the guys, then there was the criticism level. Well, what are you doing training with the guys? You know, what are you doing? Like, who do you think you are? Why don't you train with the girls? There weren't as many females who were interested. You see where I'm going with uh, this? Yeah, absolutely. It has absolutely changed. I mean, it hasn't changed where we're equal. And I don't, forgive my pessimism, I don't anticipate it ever will. Uh, and maybe maybe down the road I am proven wrong, but it just seems like the gap is so huge and the level of interest is so much different between a LeBron James and a Brittany Griner, for example, yeah. in the WNBA that I just I don't see how that closes. Right. I, I I you know what, I'm I'm sad about the pessimism. I'm I'm going to be more optimistic. That's me. <laughs> I'm the I'm, I'm not the optimist and I feel like I feel like parents now um, who are having young families and raising their young families, I feel that quite clearly, and I find this with my students too uh, at the University of Guelph, that they're far more open-minded uh, than people in, in you know maybe previous years have been, opportunities for athletes, that gender is an issue that is openly uh, discussed, that you know when someone is being um, discriminated against or there's some sort of behaviors that are um, unseemly, I'm finding that the younger people that I'm spending time with are less tolerant of that and are making strides in that direction. So I'm going to I'm going to go on the on the optimistic side and say I think we're going to see some great changes. Uh, Simona Hallett, by the way, is the woman who won the Rogers Cup. Since, of course, I couldn't remember at the worst possible time because I drew a blank, but I well, I, it's actually probably the best possible time because it would highlight exactly. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I almost forgot. Fe- I almost forgot Nadal's name too, but his popped to mind. So yes, you, you, the point I think is probably made as well. Uh, Deanna Benke Cook, I uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks. Thank you. It's great chatting with you. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.